Through the story of the Jaredites, Moroni contrasts the two roads people can take, the diverging paths of gratitude and idolatry. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome again to Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson is Ether chapter 6 through 11, That Evil May Be Done Away. As always, if you have a question about a lesson that we've recently covered or that we will cover, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com with your name and your town, and I will read your question and answer it on the air. Now, you may remember that in our last lesson, in uh, the lesson in which we covered Ether chapters 1 through 5, that we talked about the the barges that the Jaredites were traveling in being tight like unto a dish. We talked about the miracle that God did, that Jehovah did, for the brother of Jared in creating these 16 bright stones that would light the ships. And so we've already covered part of uh, chapter 6. We won't go over those particular aspects of it again, but there are still some things to cover. Uh, and this, uh, as you know, chapter 6 is the story of the great voyage of the Jaredite people across the waters. Now, interestingly enough, I'd always assumed, for whatever reason, I'd always assumed that, I don't know where I got this idea, that the Jaredites traveled by foot across northern Africa until they got to what would be present-day Morocco. And that's where they created their barges and then they floated across the Atlantic, likely to Brazil. And I assumed, I, I knew from seminary that Nephi, uh, Lehi and Nephi and their family, they, they traveled down uh, the Arabian Peninsula and likely launched from present-day Yemen, sailed across the Indian Ocean as well as the Pacific Ocean, and landed maybe somewhere in Chile. That's the, that's the thought, anyway. That's obviously nobody knows, but that is the assumption or the guess of modern scholars. And I don't, I, I don't know whether I heard this in seminary or what, but I'd always assumed that the Jaredites took the path that I just described to you. But it was, uh, it was only this week in, in researching for this lesson that I realized that most uh, Book of Mormon scholars believe that the Jaredites followed a similar, not a similar path to the Nephites, but more similar, uh, meaning they took the Pacific route. Uh, specifically, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but specifically, they went farther overland. They went much further east. And uh, so in any, in any case, I was fascinated to learn that. We'll talk a little bit more about the route that they took. But uh, going back to the stones, so you remember that the brother of Jared, when he was in the high mountain, uh, the mountaintop, speaking with the Lord, and his faith was so great that he could not be kept within the veil, and he saw, he saw the fact that Jesus Christ would take upon himself a body of flesh, and he could see the form that that body would take. Because of his great faith, no secret about the future, the present, about uh, God's plans could be, could be kept from him. And he wrote a lot of what he witnessed in that revelation, and those writings were read by Moroni and described by him, and basically he would 
and we'll read about that at the end of the book of Moroni, but he says when, when the brother of Jared wrote, it was so powerful as to the overcoming uh, of, of the flesh, and it would take your strength away. And so a powerful writer and obviously powerful content to write about. He had uh, a very unique insight into the plan of salvation, did the brother of Jared. Now, going back to his suggestion, so uh, he had a question of God, and he said, how are we going to survive when we go on this voyage? And Jesus responded, Jehovah responded to him and said, what will you that I shall do for you to help you survive? Because his problem was we're not going to have light and we're not going to have air. And many lessons have been taught about the fact that the brother of Jared came up with his own plan. He said, well, I'll go, I'll go molten 16 clear stones and then uh, please, Lord, extend your finger and touch them that they may shed light uh, for us. And this is used in a, as an example of how much faith he had and how much initiative he showed. And most of the time, the lesson goes a little bit like this. The brother of Jared had a problem, but rather than sit around and wait for the Lord to show him the solution to the problem, he came up with his own solution and then presented it to God. Now, uh, that lesson, while a good one, uh, is not perfect, right? Because we can't always just come up with our own idea and then expect God to bless that idea. Obviously, as President Nelson has said, the Lord loves effort, but uh, the Lord doesn't love every plan that comes into the mind of any person out there, right? He, he loves a lot of our plans, but some of them uh, not so much. So it's, I, I found it interesting in some of the research that I did this week to get a guess, maybe, uh, or uh, a possible origin of the idea of this glow of these glowing stones. So, first of all, we find evidence in ancient records, uh, records of Alexander the Great, for example, records of in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So, ancient writings from this part of the world where we assume that the Jaredites originated that mention glowing stones that adventurers, wanderers, travelers, rulers used to light their way in the darkness. Alexander was said to have one of these. Uh, Gilgamesh used it to light his way. He traveled into the land of the dead. Now, we, ha we also have legends from Jewish lore, from Midrashas and from uh, Torah, Torah scholars and Torah commentaries from ancient Jewish sources that believe that Noah had these some of these stones as well, and he used them to light the ark. Uh, and I and I found an interesting interpretation of a, a verse from the Bible. So in Genesis chapter six verse sixteen, Noah is commanded to create a window in the ark so that he can have light. But if you uh, and the word for window in Hebrew is tzohar. So if you look up tzohar. And uh, for those of you who haven't been listening that long, there's an easy way to, to do this kind of thing. If you go to BibleHub.com, there's a really simple menu at the top of each page that allows you to choose your Bible verse. And then once you've done that, all across the page, is sh you're shown the various translations of the Bible. And you can read that verse in any translation you choose. But 
one of the one of the tra- quote unquote translations, one of the versions of the Bible is the original Hebrew, and uh, and it's not original Hebrew. In other words, Noah himself didn't write in Hebrew, but it is the source of all the other translations, the Hebrew source. So uh, if you click on Hebrew, then you can see what I'm talking about. And one of the first verse uh, words of this verse, if not the first word, is Zohar which is interpreted in the King James Version as window, but it can also mean roof. Uh, it has a number of meanings, and basically it means light from above. So it can, it can be interpreted as a window, but it can also be interpreted as the sun at noonday, which is an interesting phrase for Latter-day Saints because we often hear that in conjunction with the glory that would come off of the uh, a manifestation of deity or of an angel. So these holy manifestations appear like the sun at noonday. In uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants, in the Pearl of Great Price, that's how modern revelation is described in many many instances. So uh, the Hebrew scholars, the ancient, the Jewish scholars of ancient. Hebrew lore believe that Noah had some stones, they had jewels, similar to the other jewels that appear in uh, legends outside of Jewish lore, and that he used these jewels, these gemstones, these precious stones, they would, they would glow when it was dark, but not when it was light. And he used these, he hung them up on the walls of the ark, so that they would have light on the inside of the ark. And knowing that, knowing that this is an actual theory that Old Testament scholars have, leads us to understand why uh, the, the brother of Jared would have immediately struck upon this idea. Because for him, the events around the flood would have not been that long ago, 100, 200 years maybe. Uh, we talked a little bit about timelines last time. But it would, it would have been recent history, and he would have read the scriptures from that time. And he would have understood if it, if it really is that Genesis chapter 6, verse 16 is talking about uh, a glowing stone within the ark, then uh, he would have known that. He would have known that interpretation because it would have been in the ri- original language, we can presume. And so he thought, well, we're doing the same thing that Noah's doing. We're crossing the waters with the people of God. This is our foundational journey. God has made us the promise that when we land, we will be among, we will be free to live a righteous uh, lifestyle, that we have fled the, the land of Babel to be able to live. And uh, like we talked about last time, this is their epic. And therefore, because we're like Noah, we have a right to the same f- favor that God showed him and to have God light our way in the darkness the same way he did for Noah. And I believe that this this theory carries some weight. And it also, if true, would show that uh, the brother of Jared saw themselves as following in Noah's footsteps, fleeing wickedness and using boats to take their livestock with them and travel to a new land and leave a sinful world behind. Uh, a world that had been destroyed in one form or another. In the case of Noah, by flood. In the case of the Jaredites, by the confusion of languages. So that's an interesting thing to think about, is that 
the brother of Jared got uh, his idea for these 16 glowing stones from the scriptures. And therefore, he knew that God was willing to grant this sort of blessing. He didn't just come up with the idea, or it's possible that he didn't just come up with the idea. He knew that this was the kind of thing that God could be counted on to do. And therefore, when God said, what will you that I should do for you? He immediately got to work following a pattern that God had already revealed. Uh, it's, it maybe sheds new light on this narrative, and I think profitable light, because uh, we, I don't think we should get our, set our expectations such that God needs to bless all of our ideas. We need to be humble enough to receive as well as to show effort and initiative. Well, that's enough about that. Uh, and I, I wanted next, I wanted to talk about another assumption that I always made about the Jaredites' journey. In chapter two of Ether, verse three, it talks about them carrying these honeybees, the Deseret. Uh, Deseret, by the way, was the original name proposed for the state, what is today the state of Utah in the United States. And we find here in the book of Ether that Deseret means a honeybee. There, the beehive is a very ubiquitous symbol around Utah. It's on top of the Hotel Utah, which is now the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. It's all over the, the church literature, it's, but you can see it featured prominently in many buildings in the Salt Lake area as well. So the early saints, they identified with the idea of busy bees, of, of industry and hard work and diligence in obeying the commandments of God, and they saw the honeybee as a symbol of this, and they also knew that it was in the scriptures. And the, the fact that there was a peculiar name, a unique name that only the readers of the Book of Mormon would know, also, I think, was part of its charm. And so they wanted to name the state that they were creating, they wanted to name it Deseret. They were overruled in, in that desire by non-members of the church who didn't want it to be a religious, a religiously connected name for the state. And so it was named after the native Indian tribe that lived here, the Utes. In any case, the, the, the bees that they carried, they carried in, they, they had, not only did they have beehives that they carried with them, but they also had some sort of fish tank or perhaps skins in which they could carry fish. They carried live fish and they carried live insects as they journeyed. Uh, okay, and what? How long was their journey? Right. The in any in either of the scenarios that I mentioned at the beginning of the program, whether they went from the and it would have been in the Fertile Crescent, right, right between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, or perhaps even further east. It, it could have been as part of the what later became the Persian Empire present-day Iran, uh, Babylon, which name is derived from Babel, the Tower of Babel, is generally believed to be and agreed upon, if this is not too controversial, that the city, the ancient city of Babylon falls somewhere within the present-day nation of Iran. And therefore, uh, they were pretty far east. So if they were to migrate if the Jaredites had decided or been led to migrate all the way across northern Africa 
and then begin their journey in that direction. And, that, and I'm not claiming that there are a lot of scholars who think this, but that would have been many hundreds of miles that they would have walked in order to find their launch point. Uh, the, the far more commonly proposed theory is that they migrated eastward. And so they crossed bodies of water. And if you look at a map today, you can see plenty of candidate bodies of water that they would have come across. And they built barges from time to time and then presumably left them behind. But they knew how to build a watertight vessel and they knew how to put all their things into it and then uh, make their way from one shore to another. The difference is in the size of the body of water, obviously, and in the amount of stores that they would have had to take with them. But I'm going through all this because as a beekeeper myself, I really thought that they, the, the miracle to me in reading the story of the Jaredites' oceanic voyage was not so much the the stones that gave them light, but the fact that their bees survived survived the journey. Uh, I've thought about this many times, and now rereading it, I realize there's nothing in the text that says they took their bees with them uh, once they did, made their final ocean voyage. The bees are mentioned early on in their migrations, so they had some honeybees with them uh, as they traveled over land, and uh, I was. I was thinking that I would talk about the fact that uh, it is a really, really interesting claim that they would have taken bees on this sea voyage. I can't imagine an ancient people being successful in such an undertaking unless there was some sort of miraculous intervention. And that may have been the case, uh, but the the bees were only mentioned in chapter two and not mentioned again later on especially in chapter six where the voyage begins so for those of you uh, like myself who who thought it would be interesting that an interesting theory that uh, ancient bee races would have mixed you know the africanized bee if you've ever heard of killer bees uh, the killer bees that people are afraid of today are actually a hybrid bee that was illegally brought over and unfortunately, African from Africa and African bees were released in Brazil and then bred with the local bee, interbred with the local bee populations and created a more aggressive breed of bee that is very hard to domesticate. In other words, they don't let you, they don't sit still while you harvest their honey. They will sting you. And the entire hive uh, oftentimes will chase after a single person and kill them. Uh, bees, the Africanized bees have been responsible for deaths. And so I thought it would be an interesting take on this story if, uh, if there was an, a prehistoric migration of Africanized bees across the ocean. Uh, and anyway, anyway uh, maybe you're not as interested in bees as I am, but we'd, I don't think that they probably could have had bees in their barges. However, they took a year's supply of food for themselves and all of their animals. And I don't know how you feed animals for a year, uh, I don't know what form of preservation they would have used for all this food, but it's really amazing. They must have spent a long time. As you remember, they spent years on the seashore before getting into the barges. They must have spent a long time preparing not just the boats that they would take, but the supplies that they would take. Uh, I wanted to make a point about this, this voyage. The, we talked about their barges. Their vessels are tight like unto a dish. And 
God had told the brother of Jared, make a hole in the bottom and a hole in the top. And I always thought that meant that the barges were, again, I had a lot of assumptions about the book of Jared, or the book of Ether and the, the Jaredite's journey. But I always assumed because they had a hole in the bottom and a hole in the top and their boats were tight like unto a dish, I always envisioned uh, almost something looking like a flying saucer. Or if you were to take two saucers and put one on top of the other, and then I imagined, you know, it's made out of wood and then a cork in the top and the bottom. And thinking about it now, I realize there's no way that that's what their boats looked like. Their boats probably looked very similar to the the renditions that you pro- have probably seen of Noah's Ark. It, the boats would have had a definite top side and a definite bottom side. And you're all thinking, of course, right, we already knew this, but I'm telling you my own realization. Uh, these, these boats would have been uh, not sailboats, right? Arcs, they would have been arcs, very similar to Noah's Ark. And they probably had a high profile above the water. Why do I say that? The Chapter 6, the, the book of Ether, describes the wind blowing them, but it doesn't describe that they had any sails. And therefore, uh, they, they would have had to present some sort of profile to the winds in order to be, uh, in order for the wind to, to exert enough force to drive them across the ocean. One other possibility for their uh, propulsion are the currents that are known to exist between the eastern coast of China and the other side of the Pacific Ocean. And this is one of the biggest uh, extra textual supports for the theory that they migrated eastward. Because modern oceanographers have charted how long it takes debris to make its way across the Pacific Ocean, and they have noticed that there is a very steady and very predictable eastward current from that sort of uh, where the coast of China is, it's mostly south-facing. It's, you know, if you were to follow the coast, you'd be traveling east, and then it sort of bends northward. And where that curve is made, if you were to drop something there far enough offshore that it made its way into the current, then you would in about 340 days or 11 months right around there and uh, you'll notice it's 344 days that the Jaredites uh, are on the surface of the water. In about that amount of time this debris would make its way somewhere around the Ecuadorian coast maybe a little bit further south and this is just fascinating. Wow if that's true then how did Joseph Smith you know, guess something. How could he have possibly guessed something so close? Now, obviously, uh, there are a lot of other variables in the, the, the account of this journey, but we are not, it, it's clear, one thing that is clear is we're not getting the full story of how difficult this was. Uh, we hear just a little bit about the fact that they created boats and they crossed bodies of water and they, uh, they took provisions with them in the wilderness, but we can assume that they were many years traveling across the thousands of miles between where they began and where they would have boarded these boats. And they needed to be refined as a people. They needed to learn that God could guide them in the wilderness. They needed to learn how to make the boats and how to get on the boats. They needed to learn that 
the prophet showed the way and that gratitude was the order of the day. But what seems obvious, and I think if you read chapter 6 and you don't get this insight, um, then you are missing the entire point. What seems obvious is that they, along the way, they learned how important gratitude was in dealing with God. You remember last time we talked about how the the message that Baroni was trying to drive into our thick skulls is keep crying unto the Lord, right? He showed what happened to the brother of Jared when he did and then when he did not. He was chosen as a prophet because he cried unto the Lord. And then he was rebuked and chastised and spent three hours getting lectured by God because he had stopped crying unto the Lord. So it was really important that they continually give thanks and pray unto God. And they seem to have learned this lesson very well because as they get in these boats and they're making their way across the ocean, they're continually giving praises unto God and the, the winds never cease blowing. Now what happens on the, on the open ocean when the wind never stops blowing? You're going to get very big waves. Occasionally you're going to get storms. And when those storms happen, you're going to, the waves are going to crash over the top of your boat. It's going to capsize. Obviously their boats are tight like unto a dish, which helped them. Uh, made it a little easier for them to make this make this journey. However, uh, it would have made the journey more rough. It would have made it rough for their children, for their animals, etc. And so the thing that I find most interesting is at the end of this time, they wash up on the on the western shore of South America, presumably. and, they just continue what they've already been doing, which is they get out of their boats and they kneel down on the shore and they give thanks that they made the journey. But I'm thinking about, I'm putting myself in their shoes or I'm thinking about my own life. And sure, God has a plan for me, but it's taking a long time. His winds are blowing. And I have been told that the winds are blowing me towards the promised land. But after just a few days or a few weeks or even a few months, I'm going to forget that. Eventually, I'm going to forget that, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to say words similar to what Joseph Smith said in Liberty Jail. You know, oh, Lord, where art thou? Where is the pavilion that covers thy hiding place? Right? Why have you left me alone? Why have you deserted me so cruelly when you made me these promises? That's the attitude that I believe that I would have had in this situation, and yet the Jaredites are constantly grateful. The wind is blowing, and they just take it on faith that the wind is blowing them towards the promised land. Sure enough, 344 days go by, and they're giving thanks the whole time. This, to me, is absolutely astonishing. Recall the voyages of Christopher Columbus. His men were about to mutiny when he was he was just forcing them by sheer power of his will to continue sailing westward they did not want to keep going they thought that if they went any further any, any farther they were going to run out of food and running out of food and water in an ocean voyage is death you can't once you eat up more than half of your food then you're committed you have to keep going and they wanted to turn around because they knew they could make it if they turned around right then and Christopher Columbus kept pushing them. We've got to sail further west, further west, further west. And those men were afraid. They didn't know what they were heading towards. And I guarantee you that, uh, first of all, 
The Jaredites didn't have any means of turning around. But second of all, I guarantee you they didn't take two years' supply of food. They had one year's supply of food and was probably running low, right? It's just unfathomable, unfathomable to think that they would have had a double supply of food for themselves and all of their animals. It would have been hard enough to deal with those animals for so long. So all of this stuff uh, is very interesting, and it just shows us how well they had learned the lesson of gratitude. And this gratitude, this overwhelming gratitude, this powerful faith mixed with gratitude is a theme of the Book of Ether. It'll come up again uh, next time when we talk about the greatest of chapters of the Book of Mormon, Ether chapter 12. But uh, right now, just remember this gratitude and faith, when they mix together, uh, this is what you get, is you get a people that are willing to be blown by the wind, be submerged in the ocean, have their boats rocked about uh, to the point where they're, they don't know whether they're going to come up again, right? It, it's a very serious storm when your boat is submerged and you don't even know if it's going to float to the top. Uh, and so that was the kind of circumstances they were in, and yet they were offering constant prayers of gratitude. I spent the most time on this because that is the most important lesson that we'll learn today, is that when you mix your faith with gratitude, God can carry you to the promised land. The, Moroni's not even trying to be subtle about this. This is the overt lesson he's trying to teach us. And I don't know whether it is deliberate, but there seems to be almost a contrast, almost a deliberate contrast here between uh, the the voyage of Lehi, which obviously Moroni would have been familiar with, and the voyage of the Jaredites. Now, of course, Moroni can't change the events in the story that he's relating, but he can change what he chooses to emphasize. And so, uh, in any case, here's the contrast. The contrast is on the on the water. Right During this time when they don't know whether they're going to reach shore or not, the Nephites, some of the Nephites, uh, Laman and Lemuel in particular, the sons of Ishmael, did lose their faith. They thought, just like the sailors under Christopher Columbus, they thought, we have now sailed beyond the point of no return and we're going to die. Uh, and I am really scared and we've got to turn this ship around. That is the, the fear that led... Laman and Lemuel to do what they did to Nephi. Obviously, the inciting incident was the the fact that Nephi was lecturing them about their their partying and whatever. But uh, they they probably would not have tied him to the mast had they not been so afraid that they were were sailing beyond the point of no return. And uh, the the Jaredites had none of that. Their journey was marked only by faithfulness and by gratitude. Now, when they arrive, they continue their previous arrangement, their previous government, which is Jared seems to be the governing brother. Whether that means he was the oldest son or one of the younger sons, we don't know. And the brother of Jared seems to be the consecrated brother. And so they continue living under this arrangement. However, when the two founders, you might call them, uh, Jared and his brother, when they grow old, and it comes time to choose a replacement, the people say that they want a king. And as we learn in the Bible, as we learn in many historical records, as we learn in our own societies, right? When, when you have a king, 
when you have a, an all-powerful monarch, this is an invitation to idolatry. We saw this in the, the expedition that went out from Zarahemla under Zenith and uh, culminated in the excesses of the wicked king Noah, right? He was an idolatrous king. Now, in his case, in the case of the, the Nephite kings, they all had access to the brass plates and they had a knowledge of what is sometimes called the, the paragraph of kings. Deuteronomy chapter 17, at the very end, it talks about how kings need to comport themselves. And this is a direct revelation from God to Moses about, uh, you know, when you go into the land of Canaan, when you inherit the land, generations from now, when you finally give up on uh, letting the people rule themselves through judges, you will, cho you will choose a king. And when you do, this is how kings have to behave. And the main admonitions were the kings have to remain humble. They have to read the scriptures. They have to copy the scriptures for themselves. They have to avoid letting their power uh, enable them in a search for wealth and for lust. So these are the admonitions that kings had to follow. Well, uh, of course, Deuteronomy postdated the Jaredites, so they would not have had access to those scriptures. They didn't exist yet. But the, you know, God being God throughout all human history, we can imagine that he had some similar code that he would have revealed to either the brother of Jared or perhaps one of the patriarchs before him. And in fact, uh, the brother of Jared, when the people said, well, you know, since you two are getting on in years, we want a king now to replace you. He said, surely this thing leads to captivity. And so right now, right away here in chapter six, Moroni is introducing the contrast because appointing a king, having an all-power ruler, as I said, is an invitation to idolatry. It's an opportunity the king might be righteous, and if he is, then he can hold back a lot of wickedness in the people from becoming permissible. But if the king is not righteous, then he will his idolatry will be infectious to the population. It's just unavoidable. Uh, like what happened with King Noah, he wanted to justify his own behavior, and so he had to replace any righteous functionaries with sycophants, people who would just rubber stamp all of his decisions and participate with him in his evil doing. So that was the wicked king Noah. That is why uh, a wicked king is an invitation to idolatry. And so that's the contrast set up, set out right there already in chapter six. Uh, interesting side note here in chapter seven. So in verse four, it talks about the, the person named Korahor and a place named Nehor. Now, if you remember, these are the names of two of the antichrists earlier, whose tales are related, related earlier in the Book of Mormon. These two specifically are antichrists who emerged right around the time when the 24 plates that contained the original record from which the Book of Ether was, was abridged, the, the antichrists Nehor and Korahor they emerged right around the time that the Nephites got this original record. So my own theory is this, that 
uh, first of all, we don't have a complete record of what happened with Korahor and Nehor, but we, Nehor, but we do know that they were it was a rebellious person, and Nehor was the place where these rebellions originated. And what I think happened is they took upon themselves. Here's this uh, this record that come this ancient record that comes down, but everybody's talking about it, so it's almost part of their pop culture. In the Nephites around the time of Alma the Younger, when he becomes prophet, the pop culture is very much talking about this news. Oh my gosh, have you heard about the Jaredites? Have you heard? Have you read those ancient records? Have you read the translations that King Mosiah made? of these ancient Jaredites and all the terrible things that happened to them. And because there were 24 plates, there may have been an extended story about Korahor in the land of Nehor. And he might might have been a terrible guy. He might have been somebody who, or he may have been uh, somebody who opposed faith on an intellectual level, because both of these men did, right? Nehor and Korahor. They weren't just saying, let's be wicked for the sake of wickedness, they were saying, let's be wicked, and here is a justification for wickedness. And so that's kind of what I think was going on in this chapter, but it's been abridged by by Moroni. But the evidence is there, the evidence of the names. So I believe what happened is Korahor and Nehor, they both said, I'm going to take upon, I'm going to call myself the name that I found in this record of the rebellious people, of the people who were in opposition to faith, because that is the goal that I have. That is the path that I'm going to choose. So an interesting idea there. You can uh, read that chapter 7, verse 4, and see what you think. Um, In chapter 7, we are first introduced to the idea that a king would live in captivity all his days. And that's an... (laughs) Right, and I've always had the idea that uh, they're sitting in some dungeon and eating, you know, their arms chained to the wall and eating with a wooden fork, the slop that the jailers put through the door. the the uh, The modern idea of prisons is actually quite a, a pretty recent innovation. Captivity in the old days did not look like this. Uh, it may be that somebody could be thrown into a pit or a cistern for a limited time, but if uh, there wasn't the concept of a life sentence in prison, and certainly not a multi-generational sentence. So probably what captivity meant was some form of house arrest. You can go live on your farm, but you can't leave your farm, for example. Uh, and they would have had rules to circumscribe their behavior, like you can't raise an army, right? You, you can't have a bunch of people over there talking about agitations. And so that's my, this is my guess of what captivity all his days meant, is house arrest. You can go live on your farm, and uh, other than that, we don't want to hear from you. Now, uh, that brings us to chapter 8, and this is when we start to hear about the secret combinations. Now, if you read Moses chapter 5, you'll, you'll learn that secret combinations preceded the flood. In fact, not too long after Cain's murder of Abel, the, the children of Cain started coming up with a way to hide their sins from and to use sin and to use violence in order to get gain. And the, the pact that they made to conceal each other's transgressions, this was a secret combination. And whether the 
Jaredites discovered it from their scriptural records or whether they came up with it on their own. Uh, they have they formed groups very similar. They they had a pact with each other that they would not tell anyone about their sins. And here's another similarity to another work of scripture. The daughter of a wicked king named Jared, she said, uh, you can you can recruit someone to your cause. If I dance in front of him and you offer him my hand in marriage, then uh, you can, we can all make this pact that he will go kill someone for you and that no one will know about it. But he'll be willing to help you because of me. I'd be very surprised if this event doesn't have some of the same associations for you as it did for me because it's very reminiscent of when Herodias the uh, wife of King Herod Antipas, right, had and uh, sent her daughter to dance before the king and then demand the head of John the Baptist in a charger, right? The, the plan was to woo him with dancing and then to uh, get him to murder someone. And this conspiracy here in chapter 8 had a similar beginning. In uh, Moroni spends an, a large amount of chapter 8 talking about giving us his commentary. Uh, and his commentary is clearly demarcated. When Moroni starts talking, uh, it's a little bit different than when Mormon starts talking. Because Mormon's voice is as a narrator over his entire abridgment. And sometimes he works his commentary in with the narration. But Moroni seems to take a, a very uh, clean or clearly demarcated break and then get back to the story when he's done talking. And here in verse 8, he lectures us a great deal, basically saying that it, I'm, I'm telling you about these secret combinations because you're going to have them in the future. And you, the righteous, you have a duty to resist them. You have a duty to not let them gain power over you. If you, if you fail in this duty, it will be the destruction of your people. And so you have to fight when you see it happening, you have to fight against it. You have to root it out, no matter what the cost, because the alternative is destruction. This is the ultimate idolatry. And the point of chapter 8 is to show us how bad, in fact, evil can get. There really is no—it's it, there's no bottom to how, uh, how far Satan will carry you if you let him. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I made the worst possible decision— well, no, that's not true. Satan will lead you to a worse one if you let him. The, de the, the bad decision that you make today could be even worse tomorrow if you keep listening to Satan. And that's what uh, chapter 8 is trying to show us, is that if you spiral down, if you keep spiraling and spiraling down, idolatry takes you down to this place where the entire society just simply cannot exist. God will not put up with it for one moment longer. And that's the situation that the Jaredites found themselves in more than once because their secret combinations led them to resist the prophets and then silence them and kill them. Because they did this, in chapter 9 we see that a famine came upon the land and eventually the Lord had to send a plague of serpents and it drove away all of their livestock. Their life got so bad that they had no choice but to repent. The same sort of scenario that we've seen among the Nephites throughout the rest of the Book of Mormon, but even worse. I mean, this was very dramatic. So, on the one hand, we begin today's lesson talking about this amazing example of gratitude carrying them across the ocean. Gratitude mixed with faith. 
right? This powerful combination. And now here in chapters eight and nine, we see the idolatry mixed with pride, mixed with greed. And these three things together will destroy any civilization once they become widespread. Now, moving on to chapter 10, again, we see the, the, almost the antithesis of the paragraph of Kings. If you want an example of how not to be a good king, uh, here in chapter 10, Riplakish is the example of, of exactly what not to do if you want to uh, follow God as the king or lead the people of God. Chapter 11 is where, from a timeline perspective, most of the, we sort of fast forward, we begin now fast forwarding, and most of the timeline of the Jaredite history falls in this chapter. And eventually the people, even though they have a righteous ruler at times, the the voice of the people or the, the general consensus is slowly shifting, or sometimes not so slowly, but it's inexorably shifting towards wickedness. Once the voice of the people, as King Mosiah said, when he established the reign of the judges, once the voice of the people chooses wickedness, then you will be ripe for destruction. And that's what we see happening in chapter 11. We have seen their gradual decline, and now it's accelerating. And it's progressed to the point where it's irreversible. And they have chosen to not only be chastised by famine and flood and uh, serpents and uh, prophecies and and wickedness, but now they have chosen to be utterly destroyed by warfare. And I don't believe it's any accident that right after chapter 11, Moroni begins one of his extended commentaries again. And the point being, he, he showed us now the result of a people who cries unto the Lord who learns to follow the prophet, who lets uh, Jehovah be their light and mixes faith with gratitude. And then he turns it around and shows what happens to these same group of people, to the same civilization, when they choose evil, when they choose pride, when they choose idolatry, and when they let idolatry go to its extreme. Then it becomes a civilization, a society-destroying problem. And this isn't just a macro description. This description applies to each of us personally. So we can choose, we can learn to follow the prophet. We're all going through this journey, this migration of life. We're traveling from one state where we were comfortable, but then you know, our language was, whatever the analog to you in your life is of your language being confused, you have to move from where you were to where you're going. Somehow you need to find a promised land. You need, you need real conversion, and you need not only to have a God to believe in, but you need a God that is capable of keeping his promises to you. And therefore, you begin this journey, you begin this exodus, and you follow the footsteps of all the prophets, you follow the footsteps of Moses and of Noah and of the brother of Jared and of Nephi and Lehi when you do this, when you set your foot upon this road to move where you once were comfortable but couldn't stay, to where you can finally rest and enjoy the blessings of God forever, right? You have put your foot upon this road. And you have a choice. Am I going to follow the prophet? Am I going to be humble enough to let God be my light? Am I going to mix faith with gratitude as I travel? When the winds blow, am I going to be willing to continually believe that they're constantly leading me to where I want to be? Or am I going to grumble like, like Laman and Lemuel and rebel 
Am I going to lose my faith across that interminable ocean voyage that seems to last forever? And when we go beyond the point of no return, am I going to keep lifting up my voice in thanks to God? Or am I going to choose idolatry, uh, wicked kings to rule over me? Am I going to choose to hide my sins and to find other people who will enable me in hiding my sins? Am I going to choose lust, greed, to use my power to cement my ability to gain more power? Am I going to be corrupted? Am I going to be willing to tell lies about what God wants and misrepresent his will to others? In other words, am I going to be willing to take God's name and use it in vain? God, as he said in the Ten Commandments, he's not willing to forgive when we take his name in vain in that way, when we do evil in the name of God. And eventually, this idolatry becomes a secret combination, something that is rotten to the very core, and it has to be destroyed. Do I choose spiritual life, or do I choose spiritual death? These are the two roads that humankind will travel, and that individual humans will travel. Each of us chooses this road, and each of us together, collectively, choose the road for our society. So I pray we can set our feet upon the road of faith mixed with gratitude, and I also pray that we will, as a society, that we will be collectively willing to make the sacrifices necessary to keep our entire civilization on a path to let God be our light. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.